District 24, DRG Media Group Candidate Forum. I'm the News and Farm Director, Jody Hoopster, here off camera, uh, asking the questions here today. And I'm just going to start by having all the candidates introduce themselves. And uh, Will Mortensen, District 24 House Candidate, will have to start with you. Thanks, Jody, and uh, thanks everybody for, for being here and for watching online. My name is Will Mortensen. I'm running for re election to the District 24 House of Representatives. I'm a Republican. Uh, I was born and raised here in Pierre and Fort Pierre, and I'm a product of the Stanley County and, and Pierre schools. Um, I currently am an attorney in Fort Pierre. I practice agriculture, law, estate, probate. Um, I'm not in the courtroom all that often. I also spend about 30 days a year working on a family cow-calf operation in northern Stanley County. Um, outside of there, I volunteer. I'm current chairman of the board at the Capillary Counseling Services, the largest mental health and addiction treatment service provider in the region. I'm on the board for the Boys and Girls Club uh, and some other service organizations. My most important jobs, though, are, are husband to Cherie, uh, who's originally a Watertown gal, and father to Augie, who's four, and Jules, who's one. Um, between all that, it's a pretty full life, but, but a good life. And really, uh, the reason that I chose to get involved in legislature and seeing the future of our state was that I wanted my kids to have the same opportunities for uh, upbringing that I had when I grew up here. I wanted Central South Dakota to remain a place with good quality schools that was safe, that was um, you know well policed, that was a place that still um, uh, respected property rights and respected initiative and allowed for somebody to um, build out a life for yourself if you're going to work hard and play by the rules. I'm really grateful to have served over the last couple of years in the legislature. I view it as an absolute privilege bestowed on me by the voters. I know who my bosses are, and that is the people of, of Central South Dakota and District 24. I worked really hard. I studied issues. I listened to people um, of all persuasions on, on the bills that came before us. Uh, I wasn't afraid to lead. Sometimes I got to lead on exciting projects like uh, getting some money to uh, renovate and improve Capitol Lake and some of those monuments or the Cultural Heritage Center. Uh, and sometimes on some things that were not so fun, I drafted the articles of impeachment for the Attorney General and led the effort in the House of Representatives. So I'll tell you, that was the most difficult thing I've had to do in this job or any other. Uh, but the point is that when there were um, tough issues or important issues for the state of South Dakota and for Central South Dakota, I wasn't afraid to leave even if I knew I was going to take some flack for it. And finally, I'm proud to have listened to the people uh, in my first term. I've sent out a number of letters that just ask, what do you think the legislature should focus on? What, should, what are your priorities? What should I be focusing on? And I really try to use that to inform how I govern because, again, my bosses are the voters. I am there uh, to represent you, to fight for you, and something I take very seriously. So I'm looking forward to the next hour uh, and, and getting to talk through some of the issues. Uh, I'd sure appreciate your support to, to send me back for another term in the House of Representatives. Thanks, Will. District 24 House Candidate, Mike Weisgram. Hi, my name is Mike Weisgram. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today and to uh, take part of this forum. I am, uh, as you're going to kind of hear, we're, we're lifelong residents of uh, Central South Dakota. Uh, I'm, I'm a mature person. I'm 69 years old. I think most people would, would know me because I uh, had country carpet and flooring for 37 years. Uh, after I sold that business, I uh, became a city councilman in Fort Pierre. 
and now I've served two years in the, in the legislature. Uh, I'm married to my wife Judy for 43 years. I have uh, two kids and six grandkids, and uh, since most of my kids are here, uh, that's the reason I'm, I'm running again for uh, another term. The values of South Dakota are very important to me. They're very important to you. And I would like to use my judgment that I've accumulated over my working career to uh, move South Dakota forward. I'm uh, on, the on the Commerce and Energy Committee and Local Government Committee. And, th and it fits me very well. In the legislation I've tried to pursue uh, were to promote housing, promote, promote housing infrastructure, uh, to be clear, to expand our workforce, and uh, a few healthcare issues as well. So I would really appreciate the opportunity to serve another term. It seems like uh, it took a couple uh, sessions to get, get my feet wet, get really comfortable, and, and know what it takes to be a good legislator. I have a good work ethic. I work hard to build good relationships, and uh, I would like to earn another term. Thank you very much, sir. And District 24 House candidates, Mary Weinheimer. Thank you. And thank you for allowing us to today. Look forward to the questions. Uh, like I said, I'm Mary Weinheimer. I'm a lifelong resident here in Pierre. My husband Mark and I have been married for 23 years, and we've been blessed with five kids. We're full-time farmers in Sully County. My family, the Morrises, have owned and operated a construction company in Southern South Dakota for 52 years. Uh, going on second generation, proud to make that accomplishment in the last few years. You know, most people know me not as a politician, sorry, but rather, you know, I'm up here as a strong wife, strong mom, a small a business owner, and a farmer. And I see firsthand the culture and economic threats that are happening to this community and to our families. And I guess I strongly feel that we need representatives with a vision and courage face these challenges head on. Um, there's just a lot happening from the top down to the bottom, uh, and it's got to start from the bottom up. I strongly believe in our state motto, under God the people rule. This should serve as a guidepost for our policymakers when making decisions. Too many times our politicians forget their public servants, you know, and I want to be a voice for District 24 for the people. Uh, I believe the family is a backbone of society, and it should be cherished and protected. I'm a firm believer in that. I'm very, very passionate about that. I believe South Coast more rural communities, like our people, are what make the state exceptional. And we should not continue to take the vaccine to Sioux Falls and Rapid. You know, I cherish my faith. I love my family. I'm pro-life, pro-Second Amendment. I believe in limited, responsible government, and I strongly support agriculture. Uh, if I'm given the honor to serve District 24, I will fight hard to keep our communities thriving and our families stronger. All right, thank you, Mary. Now we'll go to the District 24 Senate candidates, starting with Mary DeVolk. Thank you, Jody. Thank you to um, your station for hosting us and for everyone who was here or watching online. I'm Mary DeVolk. I grew up on a ranch in western South Dakota, graduated from South Dakota State University with a degree in ag business. Um, got a job in Pierre, married 
an engineer, state employee who works in the water rights division. It's been incredibly busy lately with all the people wanting irrigation permits. Uh, I was asked to run for the legislature, for the House, and it took some convincing, but I said, okay, I will do it. I ran for the House. The voters were gracious enough to give me the job. I served four terms in the House. When I was term limited, the people again came to me and said, please run for the Senate. And I did, and the voters again were gracious enough to give me the job. I'm just finishing my first term in the Senate. I serve as chair of the Transportation Committee. I serve on State Affairs, Ag and Natural Resources, and Retirement Laws Committees, and those are all really significant for our district. I'm also on the Executive Board for the Legislative Research Council, and this summer I am Vice Chair of a committee dealing with property taxes. It's an issue that we hear a lot about, both from the taxpayer side and from the school and the county and city government side, that that's where those monies go. And it's something that we need to work hard to get right. Um, one of the things I love about representing this district is the depth of expertise we have right here at home. Uh, our district stretches from Phillip to Highmore, so farming, ranching, hunting, fishing, education, health care, state government issues, we've got our expertise right here. There are friends and our neighbors and the ones that we want to visit with. What I love, too, about this district is the fact that of all the legislation I've worked on over the past 10 years, the most satisfying and the best pieces of legislation that I've worked on are those that have been suggested by my constituents. And we've done some really good things, taking care of roads and bridges, water infrastructure, the Animal Disease Lab in Brookings. It's kind of a wonky thing, but it's important for agriculture. Uh, the Bioprocessing Institute that will create new job, new potential opportunities for farming and ranching and timber community. Uh, I believe in statesmanship and solving problems, finding positive solutions, and also recognizing that government does not have all of the answers. So, uh, but speaking of answers, I look forward to the questions over the next several minutes and uh, enjoy the discussion. All right, thank you, Mary. Uh, and finally, uh, District 24 Senate candidate, Jim Hall. Thank you, Jody, and thanks to Dakota Radio Group for putting on this forum. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak about um, my position pre preferences and my background. I was born in uh, McPherson County, Eureka, raised there. I attended school in Aberdeen at Northern State University, and I moved to Pierre in 1994 when I got out of college, hoping to uh, land a state job. Unfortunately, at that time, the Supreme Court had, had kind of frozen uh, video lottery at the time and it put the state government in a, in a uh, freeze as far as hiring and traveling and everything went. But I landed a job with uh, Capillary Counseling, worked there for a period of time before I uh, got a job with the State Auditor's Office, where I worked for a number of years before uh, starting a private business with my brother here in Fort Pier. And uh, we ran that for a few years before I was actually planning to uh, go to law school, but somewhere between the, taking the LSAT and leaving, I met Annie, my wife, and uh, I guess the rest is history. We were married in 
2003, and we have two kids. I have a stepson, Bryce, who's uh, attending the University of South Dakota. My daughter, Mary, is going to be a senior at Raiders next year. Uh, I've come to love Central South Dakota. I've made pure my home. I've been very in invested and involved in the community through Oahe Habitat for Humanity, uh, pure players. I served on the St. Joe School Board for a term, and then of course I'm probably most well known, I served 12 years on the Pier City Commission uh, where we worked on a lot of issues and dealt with a lot of things, including the flood and, and uh, building out our infrastructure with our electrical uh, department, and I got on the front end of our water treatment plant, which was uh, basically called for by the people that went on, on the ballot, I believe it passed with over 80% of the vote was positive. Uh, you can check me on that, I could be wrong, but it was an overwhelming amount of folks wanted that. So, since then I've uh, retired from state government recently and I decided to run for District 24 Senate because I felt called to do it. I've had a, a number of concerns about what's happening. It seems like District 24 State government itself seems to be dwindling. We appear to be outsourcing our state government to Sioux Falls and Rapid City. When I moved to town, there were all kinds of young people here who came to be here to work in state government. Many of them are still here. Some of them are gone now. But they were here for a period of time. And it seems like lately it's too easy to hire people. They work remotely. So I want to focus on that as a one of my uh, issues that I want to work with and kind of change the culture on third floor to get people to understand that state government is important and it's important that policy, they come here to develop policy and it's implemented from here how important it is to support this city. Uh, I'm also uh, running as a strong conservative. If you've seen my sign, it's right on there. And uh, I'm pro-life candidate. Uh, I believe in personal property rights, individual liberties, Second Amendment rights. I think government should focus on what it can do more efficiently, and it should stay away from things that can be done more efficiently by the private sector. And uh, I want to work for state employees. You know, and this is, working for state employees doesn't just mean getting them money, because generally that's formulated on the second floor, and a lot of things happen through the appropriations policy, and usually what the governor proposes is what we wind up with at the end. But we can really focus on the importance of state employees as our partners in the legislature, and sometimes I think the legislator looks at them as, uh, as uh, not really partners in the process, and uh, many of our state employees are just as conservative as I am. And uh, they have good advice. We need to listen to them because they're the ones uh, where a lot of the policy ideas come from and they're the ones who have to implement it when it's done. And we need to respect the role that they play and understand that the blue badge, which is kind of a wonky term, but they're the public lobbyists. They're working for the public interest. Most of the other lobbyists are working for a special interest that they're being paid to represent. And I think we really need to show them that respect. 
And uh, with that, I look forward to the rest of the to the forum. I hope I didn't go on too long. Thank you, Jody. All right, well, let's uh, start with the, the, the first of um, the topic ideas, uh, questions. Um, you kind of all touched on it a little bit, and uh, Mike Weissram, we'll start with you. Uh, some of the biggest challenges you see facing District 24 right now, um, you know, what are some of those challenges, and, and what kind of approaches uh, would you take or would you like to see towards uh, trying to um, maybe fix some of those challenges? Anybody seen the help wanted signs? <laughs> well, I, so I think workforce is our, our biggest uh, challenge. Uh, I just came from a hospital board meeting, and uh, it, we have, I, I don't even want to tell you how many full-time nurse positions that we have open. Uh, it, it's, which, which means the hospital has to hire traveling nurses, which increases their costs. So I, I, that's just a microcosm of, of the challenges that we have in our community for workforce. Uh, I would say still the lack of housing is, is a big deal in Central South Dakota. I was at a conference last week. It was called the Energize Conference. It was for small communities. Joey was there. Uh, Chamberlain is buying property, develop, developing in lots, and giving them away. Isn't that interesting? So from a state government position, I'm not exactly sure, other than the housing bill that we passed last year to help with infrastructure, how we fix things. Um, on a national level, I'd, I'd like to see a good immigration policy. I, th I think that would be very uh, good for our country as well as our state. Um, one thing I've talked to our uh, state folks about is the challenges of daycare. I think I think daycare is a, is a problem in Central South Dakota as well. And I've hinted towards them. I said, could could you do a public-private partnership and and provide some kind of daycare benefit for our state employees? It's just something I've thrown out there. I, I'm a free enterprise guy, and it, it seems to kind of go against some of, some of that principle. But um, so I, I think, in conclusion, I'd say housing, workforce, uh, daycare were, were things that I think are if we, if we could make them better, it would be a extremely big help for our communities. Mary, uh, your thoughts on some of the challenges facing District 24 and how you might go about trying to help um, fix or better the situation? Sure. I think first we have to address the economic hardships that are going on that everyone's feeling, whether not just our District 24 constituents. Inflation taxes are hurting our people, especially the farmers and ranchers. Um, ranchers. Agriculture is our number one industry in the state of South Dakota. Um, and I feel, you know, voting against the sales tax relief um, that could have been one step in the right direction. You know, it would have been a small amount of money back for people, but that really would have gone a long way, especially with the amount of fertilizer being up 61%, fuel being at all-time high at 50%. Um, farmers, ranchers, I mean, the weather, yeah, that's a hurdle right now, but there's, we've got a lot of issues, fertilizer not even 
being able to get to the field, and then if we're going to make another pass across the field, if we can afford that. But, so that small tax break would have been huge right now. Um, that would have been felt with the farmers and ranchers. You know, tens of millions of dollars continue to go out the door and first giving them back to the South Dakota people. People are what make this state great. Uh, so I, I feel looking at that would be a very good option. Uh, we have to choose to invest in our people. I just feel we can do better with that. Uh, I also feel the erosion of parental rights is a real problem. Um, there's been a number of opportunities to take a strong stand against this trend. And time and time again, um, voting against parents and the families, which you know, I'm very, very passionate about. Um, I think we've got to fight for strong families in our schools, in our business life, and you know, the public square. All right. Thank you, Mary. Um, Will Mortensen, um, your, your thoughts on some of the challenges facing District 24 and its constituents, and some thoughts on how to maybe those situations. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing you think about a lot is how do we make our communities better, stronger, uh, more prosperous, not at this income level or that, or this industry sector or that industry sector, but, but how do we help this community to become stronger, become more vibrant? Um, and, and I think Mike hit on a lot, which is it seems like we don't have quite enough people right now. I mean, I talked to the state and, and between Senator Duvall and Representative Weisman and I, boy, we've been hounding the state about keeping state jobs here and here and fighting for that and saying it doesn't make any economic sense to rent somewhere else when you've got an empty building here. We should be using that. That benefits the taxpayers, not just here, but across the state. We've been nipping at them and, and working at them and cajoling them throughout. And they turn around and say to us, well, guys, we've got 75 open jobs listed for the state, the station here, and we got to get these filled. And to Mike's point, there's dozens at the hospital they're looking for, and um, you know, you go up and down to every contract and they could use extra folks, and um, big businesses, small businesses across sectors. And so how do we, what do we do about that? How do we do? And I think a lot of it goes to um, providing a quality affordable education we got a, you know, there was a time during COVID where we were paying people way too much not to work. We stopped that, but I'm worried that we're still kind of cycling through and feeling a little bit of the ill effects of that. We got to get labor force participation back up, but a lot of that is we got to make sure that we're able to give people um, an education that is fitting for them, that's interesting to them. There's a lot of different ways to succeed through education. It's not just go through, get straight A's, go to the university, go for four years. Uh, there are technical programs that we offer at the high school level that I think is, is every, every bit as successful and every bit as in demand and every bit as capable um, of producing a family sustaining wage for these folks. And so I think we need to be supportive of our schools, uh, our technical schools, as well as our universities, but um, making sure that we are not losing kids uh, along the way is, is I think how we're going to be able to build real sustainable growth and prosperity in our community because um, you know we're, we're not going to raise taxes we're going to we're going to hold them down the way we can do that and still afford to pay our teachers and pay our state employees a fair wage is that we got to have some economic growth and I think the most sustainable strong way to do that is to address our workforce problems uh, by by educating our kids well thanks Will. Uh, 
Jim Melhoff, uh, District 24 Senate candidate. Let's uh, take that question to to you. Just some thoughts on the, the challenges in District 24 and some thoughts and ways that uh, you, you think could be used to, to resolve some of those situations. Well, thank you. Well, when, you, when you're the fourth person to answer it, you're probably going to hear some, <laughs> some old information. But the, the first thing that comes to mind, which was, I think, the first thing mentioned, was workforce issues. We have them here. Uh, some of the ways I think that, that we could solve them are the way that we treat our retirees. I don't know if over the last several years we've seen a number of laws that have uh, hit the legislature that kind of squeezes retirees out of the workforce, either by limiting the number of hours they can work, penalizing them in the retirement benefits if they do come back. You know, and in the case of my wife, she actually would have worked a few more years, but they put the laws on the books, which it would have started to uh, erode the benefit that she earned if she would, would have continued to work. And uh, I talked to a number of legislators about that and talk to uh, the, the lawyer at the retirement system that you need to put a clause in there that doesn't squeeze people out. And uh, I did not get any uh, performance on my suggestion on that or even any uh, responses to it. So that's something I think we can do. There's a large number of retired folks who live here who've retired from state government and they would maybe like to do something. I retired from a job that was pretty mentally intense. You know, I want to do something where my mind is my own, but you know what? I can't get a job with the city to mow Steamboat Park because they're part of the retirement system, so I would be froze out of um, participating in that or penalized for it. And I think we need to start looking at what we're doing because uh, the priority of the legislature shouldn't be just the solvency of the retirement system, it's also the workforce issues that we have here in Pierre and across state government. Uh, when I was on the city commission, uh, I always talked about a post-secondary educational opportunity in central South Dakota. We don't have one. We're the only uh, uh, Class A city in the state, I believe, that doesn't have one. You know, we have Capital University uh, Center, but that does not really produce the kind of uh, synergy in the town that a university or a tech school does, where young people come to get their education, they get part-time jobs. Um, we're never going to get an Applebee's if we don't have post-secondary. <laughs> so that's, and again, that's a major problem. That's, that's an elephant, and they say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And uh, that's something I think we need to talk about. And I discussed it with our former uh, education secretary a number of years ago. I was told that it's impossible it's not going to happen because they don't have enough enrollment at the, at the institutions that they do have. This was talking about a tech school. My question was, well, maybe those areas are overserved and Central South Dakota is underserved in that respect. So I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, we talked about the outsourcing of state government. I think that's a problem. Um, and what can we do to fix that? I think we can cast a wider net. And, you know, in my final job with the state, I was involved in some hiring decisions. And uh, in the last 
uh, interview round I sat in with, there was a young man from Rapid City who was very interested in the job. It would have been a nice step up for him. He didn't want to move to Pierre. He wanted to work out of the job service office in Rapid City. Well, we filled that job, and we got somebody to move to Pierre, and we did it by casting a wider net. We had a young man move here from Rochester, New York area, and he loves it in Pierre. Pierre has a lot to offer, and we need to be better ambassadors around the state. And, you know, put our foot down and insist. If you want to work in state government, if you want to participate, you need to come to Pierre. And if you don't, go find someone who will. And if it isn't in Mitchell or Rapid City or Sioux Falls, maybe it's going to be Rochester, New York, or Minneapolis, Minnesota, or St. Louis. Uh, one of the other problems I think that we have is agriculture is being squeezed, particularly in, on, in cattle. I know there's been a lot of talk about that. And now on top of that, uh, we have a drought facing us, which is going to be tough on cattle producers. And, uh, exactly what the state solution for that will be. And I'm not prepared to throw any out there right now, but I think it is a problem that we're going to need to look at in ways to help those folks. And uh, with the drought, I just read that the WAPA plans to produce about 77% of their normal output from their main stem dams for electricity. Well, having been on the city commission, I know how important it is that WAPA allocation to get that. And when they put a drought adder onto it, it drives up rates for, for family budgets that are already squeezed. Now, again, what we're going to do about that, I'm not certain I have the thing, but it's something that I certainly want to look at, and it's uh, something we're going to have to consider and think ahead of. correctional 
system. Uh, the women's prison here in Pierre is overcrowded. Uh, this legislature this year did approve um, money to buy some land for a work release center in Rapid City. But it's a difficult problem. Will is going to be on that interim committee that will be looking at that one. And then the other one that affects a lot of um, us in Central South Dakota are county budgets. They're being spread really thin. There are a lot of things that the legislature keeps expecting the counties to do, but counties don't have the resources to do them. So then the question becomes, do we cut some of those county functions or do we provide more resources? Uh, so I guess that's it. All right. Uh, any questions coming from back here just yet? No? Okay. We'll just keep going then. Um, looking at the upcoming uh, June ballot, I don't know if any of you have looked at the June ballot. Oh, is there an election? Right. <laughs> Something going on that day. Um, one of the items on that is Constitutional Amendment C. And um, it would make some changes to the state constitution. Um, kind of getting rid of that 50% plus one majority for approval for certain things, and uh, including um, imposing taxes or fees, obligating over $10 million, I think through five years, which really, for state government, $10 million in five years is a pretty easy number to hit. Um, just some of your thoughts on, A, that topic, and it being on the June ballot versus the November ballot, when typically, more South Dakota voters are engaged with the November elections than they are the June elections. Um, Mary, uh, why not I'll start with you. Sure. Uh, respectfully, I don't see that as an issue as far as what ballot. I feel if, someone, if it's important to somebody, they're going to show up. You know, I, there's pros and cons, whether it be primary or general. Um, I'm in support of it. Uh, if our legislators need two-thirds vote for any tax increase, I feel, you know, raising that from 50 to 60 on the ballot measure is, a, is fair. So I'm in support of the issue. Okay. Uh, Will Morrison. You bet. I was a co-sponsor of that joint resolution when it came through. Uh, I am a, a, a strong supporter of Amendment C on the ballot this year. I voted earlier today. I voted for it. Um, and the reason is that South Dakota, one of the things we do very best is a history of prudent fiscal management. I mean, we have a very stable fiscal house. We don't spend more than we have. We don't put um, take one-time money and spend it on ongoing items. We don't cut revenues because we can afford it from one year. I mean, we try to stay stable and budget prudently, like individuals would for their homes or business owners would for their businesses. And so, uh, as, as Mary mentioned, in our Constitution, which is put in there by the people, legislature uh, needs two-thirds majority to, to create a new tax or to raise a tax. They need two-thirds majority to spend a special appropriation. And so this mirrors those. I mean, it mirrors those provisions that the people put into our state's constitution that have been there for decades. And uh, I think they're prudent. I think it said, you know, it doesn't take away a single thing from the people and their ability to propose measures. You want to propose a tax increase, you still can. You want to impose, you know, you want to propose something that spends a bunch of money, you still can. What we're saying though is that we want a higher level of consensus, a little bit more scrutiny if we're going to do things uh, that affect our 
our tradition of, of prudent and conservative fiscal management in this state into the $10 million figure. It's important to read these things carefully in each word. It says $10 million in any of the first five years. And so that means it's not $10 million combined in those. It's $10 million in any one of the, the given years. And I think that's an appropriate threshold. If it's a special appropriation in the legislature, it doesn't matter if it's one dollar. It takes a two-thirds uh, appropriation. And so I think that's a prudent level to make sure that it doesn't cover things that incur incidental costs, but that are a $10 million threshold is, I think, prudent because by the time you go to spend $10 million, it might sound like a really good idea on the ballot we go to vote for, but where does that money come from? Well, the biggest things we spend on are education, state employees, and Medicaid providers. So if we're going to get $10 million, we can't hold those folks harmless. And now once we're talking 10, now we're talking about a serious amount of money that's going to have an impact on those other um, priority budget items for me. And so I'm supportive of it. I think it's going to help us keep our fiscal house in order long term, and I hope it passes here in a couple of weeks. And Mike? Yeah. I, I support the Constitution Amendment as well. Working the legislation that these two-thirds majority it is imperative that you get lots of support and you really figure out the legislation so it has a chance of passing. And I, I equate that uh, to this and the fact that if you need a 60% threshold for a uh, new tax or, or expenditure in this amount, I think it's really going to involve the voter to, to be aware of the details and where the, tech, where the monies are going to come from. So I think it makes everybody do their due diligence better. And for that reason, I'm supporting it. And kind of, kind of spinning. The senators. OK. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> don't, don't think it. I think I'm next, next. right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Mary Duval, your thoughts. Thank you. I voted for the resolution that put the measure on the ballot. Interestingly, in the Senate, it only passed by one vote. It did not pass by a 60% majority to get it on the ballot. Um, but I have some very grave concerns about it. Um, in the first place, there's a difference between direct democracy, South Dakotans going to the polls and voting for something, and representative democracy, where your senators and representatives are elected to dig into the issues and work to represent your interests. What this would do is a de facto minority control of the outcome of the issue. You only need 40% plus one person to vote against it, and um, they get to be the ones who get to be the sayers on that. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important that we give extra scrutiny to amending our Constitution. That's something that should not be done lightly by anyone at any time. So my biggest takeaway is that I hope that, uh, like Mary said, no matter whether you vote in June or November, the important thing is to be an informed voter, to study the issue, to ask questions, and then to decide what you think is best for South Dakota. Thank you, Jody. When I when I think of the majority rule uh, issue with it, I always think of the two wolves and the lamb voting on what's for dinner. 
And uh, there's a reason why some things require supermajorities, because it protects uh, people who will be affected by it. So in, with respect to uh, creating special appropriations, extra taxes, money that's coming out of all of our pockets, I think it makes sense to require a supermajority, which is why it's required at the legislative level. And uh, I think ballot access in South Dakota is very easy to do. It's not hard to get things on the ballot in South Dakota. A lot of special interests, a lot of outside state special interests come and kind of tinker with uh, democracy through our ballot access rules. So I think with, when it comes to uh, increasing uh, state expenditures, having it be at least 60% is more than reasonable. Uh, with respect to the process, uh, I think this process has been good. It originated in the legislature. I believe it had hearings and people had opportunity to speak to their legislators and weigh in on the issue and it was referred to the ballot by our state legislature. Now I saw something in the mail today that said don't let outside interests you know, mess with your constitution. So I didn't realize that the state legislature was an outside special interest, outside the state special interest. So which illustrates something that oftentimes with these ballot uh, initiatives there's a lot of misinformation that happens and it goes back to jail for judges and a couple years ago when uh, I can't remember what it was called but we had people leaving the state transportation commission and all kinds of appointed positions because of uh, a ballot issue that the legislature wound up I mean they took a lot of heat from people for undoing it it was found unconstitutional at the district court level and uh, never did get to the Supreme Court because the legislature took matters in their own hands and, and made changes to, the, to those rules. So I think it's important that when it comes to something as important as reaching into people's pockets that a 60% is good. And as far as whether it's on June 7th or in November, it's important that people are informed when they vote on it, whenever it is. And just to kind of um, spin off that just a little bit, and we'll start back with Jim. We're going to start with Jim this time and then work our way that way. Um, there's been, the last several years, there's been um, amendments proposed to the state constitution. Seems like there's one or two every year for the past several years. Um, are these, and I realize it'll depend on topic, but um, is which do you think could be the more efficient way to handle some of these topics? Is it making an amendment to our state constitution, or is it something that could maybe go through the legislature, uh, or a, a little bit of both? Let's just use the information in Amendment C as our example for um, this particular question. Better as a constitutional amendment that the voters vote on? Be more efficient to have the legislature run it through and do the vetting and, and take care of things that way? Well, the legislature is a deliberative body and they're elected to actually study issues and make informed decisions before they put things on the ballot to the people. I think that is a far better process 
then the special interest group uh, putting together uh, amendments or changes to our constitution and putting them on the ballot, and then uh, you know doing a media campaign, which does not always present the facts in a fair and deliberate manner. I think a perfect example of that is marijuana. There's a lot of people upset that uh, Governor Nolan and I think uh, Sheriff Tome and the Department of Public Safety challenged the constitutionality, constitutionality of recreational marijuana. And it was deemed unconstitutional at the trial court level and then at the Supreme Court. Now, I may be a little bit cynical, but we had two former U.S. attorneys who were very involved in writing that up. And they got guidance from LRC. You know, I suspect that they may have done it just so they could have an issue of the, the state overriding the will of the people. And uh, I think it's far better to do those things through a deliberative body than to have special interests develop them and stick them on the ballot. Well, it's interesting because although South Dakota was the first state to allow direct initiated measures laws to be put on the books, to be voted on, it wasn't until 1974 that uh, citizens could directly put an issue of a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Until then, it always had to be the legislature who put the issue on a ballot, or the legislature had to be to call a constitutional convention to propose a measure. Uh, the legislature has really struggled with this the last few years, trying to make sure that measures that get to the ballot, especially constitutional measures, have been vetted somewhat. There has to be an intervening session. Uh, it does have to go to LRC for review and comment. There's no requirement, though, that the sponsors of that measure take those suggestions into consideration. And we found a lot of that with uh, the marijuana measure that was adopted. Uh, the sponsors were told it will be challenged because it violates the one subject rule. There were drafting errors in it, and the sponsor said, yeah, we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. But as far as amending our Constitution, I think it really depends on the issue. There are some things that definitely belong in our Constitution, but there are some things in there that don't belong in our Constitution. But we have said, no, citizens, if you gather enough signatures, this is what you have to do. Mary Weiner. Um, I'm a strong believer in the Constitution, and if you're just talking about Amendment C and, you know, kind of put something back on there with that measure, you know, I kind of go back and forth, but I think we've got to be very careful with our Constitution and why it was formed and how it was formed. So I've, in the past, I've always been frustrated that these out-of-state people, organizations, can come in and put whatever ballot measures, and they know how easy it is to do it in South Dakota. When we get the Californians coming in to do it, that's always frustrating. So you got to be very, very careful with that. Um, going through the legislature process, you know, I think one of them said, you know, as far as it getting vetted and going through the proper procedures, I think is important. Um, but then you don't want to take away the will of the people. My question. Well, the, to have a kind of a legislative process, seemingly there's many more opportunities for committee meetings and information to get out there and testimonies. So, 
seemingly to me that's the best way. Constitutional amendments versus initiated measures, I'd rather see uh, some of these things come through an initiated measure more so than a constitutional amendment. Uh, the constitutional amendment really doesn't allow any management of what's being voted on. Uh, I know there was frustration about the, the marijuana issues, but you know, they didn't, they didn't do it correctly. But at least with medical marijuana being an initiated measure, you could formulate rules. You could, you could work with people that are in the know to, to come up with a program that, that is workable. If that would have been a constitutional amendment, we really would have been stuck with whatever the, the language of it was. So um, it's, a, it's something that, it's a fact, it's, it's here, it's, we deal with it. But uh, constitutional amendments, like many have said, we need to be careful with that. Right. And Will, let me see you chomping at the You know, I love this topic. I really do. I, I did some independent research uh, when I was in law school on exactly this question. Because uh, as has been noted, our state was the first in the country to have the uh, initiated measure and referendum process, which I think we should be very proud of. The reason we had that was because we were afraid of big money interests from out of states, largely the railroads, corrupting our legislature. And so we reserved to the people the right to change and kind of keep that in check. And today what I would tell you is that these large big money interests from out of states are using the ballots principally. I mean, when you're, if you're up talking to someone in the legislature and you're just some random person from out of state, I would tell you that of course we'll listen to you and give you a fair hearing. But you're not, you know, we don't know you, we don't trust you, we don't have a background with you immediately, and so we'll review the information. Uh, but you just don't see that happen very often. Instead, what these big money groups do, and in my research found 85% of the money over three election cycles, I believe 18, 16, 14, 85% of the money came from out of state. And it's like, why do these guys want to change the laws we have to live under so badly from their stations in Boston or wherever? Um, and so it is something that I think we need to be protective of and make sure that we retain the intent of this, which is that it is a grassroots protective measure for the people of South Dakota, that we can use it as a shield for us and not as a sword against us. So I think there's reasonable measure to do on that. Now, I think there was a pretty good um, example two years ago of where this is still necessary, where it is still a shield, in the, the medical marijuana proposal, which uh, I supported on the ballot, it was not a perfectly written measure, but it was something that had been tried in the legislature year in, year out for a long time. And it finally took uh, the people of this state to say, darn it, this is what we want. And so what did the legislature do in the first year? We didn't change one single word, syllable, or comma by M26. Uh, thanks to the great work of the people of the Department of Health, they got that implemented on time. Um, and, and so then what did we do? We took a year. And about a quarter of the legislature was on a summer study that looked at how can we keep the intent of this, we worked with the sponsors of it, keep the intent, but clean up some of the drafting errors and some of the jagged edges uh, regulation-wise that didn't work. And I think that was, um, that's something that I'm proud of. And I think it's something the legislature and the Nome administration should be proud of in taking a measure, we left it in place for a year, we implemented it exactly as written, and then the changes we made, we made as, as part of a consensus package and after a lot of vetting, uh, and now we've got a, a, a good patient-focused medical marijuana program 
uh, on the books, but we wouldn't have got there if, if the people in our initiated measure process wasn't in place. And so I'm a believer in it, and um, we've got recreational marijuana coming. If that measure passes, I'll give that the same deference I gave the, the medical marijuana, which is I'll be um, fully committed to implementing the will of the people on that one as well. I think that's important, but um, it's certainly something I've thought a lot about and, and that I find to be pretty interesting. And, we need to be careful about it and careful about out-of-state folks kind of commandeering it, but it has a very important place in our, our state and our state government. All right, this is going to be the uh, last question as we're uh, running up towards the end of our hour here, but this one coming uh, from uh, a member of our audience here. Um, and we'll start with Mary Duvall. Um, solutions to the nursing home crisis and uh, some, some views on increasing Medicaid support. Uh, some thoughts from you on, on those two topics. So for the last couple of years, we have uh, been able to appropriate additional money to help with some of the community support provider things that need to be done. We have more work to do. Um, you know, Governor Janklo instituted a nursing bed moratorium. And that was, you know, cast in stone at that point in time. I think we need to look at how the demographics have changed and what other changes need to be made. As far as Medicaid expansion, the voters will tell us this fall what their views are on that. Jim, I think the nursing home, I guess if you want to call it a crisis or situation that we're under, it's a perfect example of government intervention gone awry by putting that moratorium on. I mean, you have people who live in Aberdeen who have to find a bed for their loved one in Highmore or somewhere else, a long distance away from where the family is. And once you get government involved in something, trying to get government back out of it is a complicated process because uh, it's kind of like kind of like a game of Jenga. You have to move very, very uh, deliberately and cautiously, or the whole thing comes crashing down. So there's a, a, one issue that kind of goes back to my to the beginning. It's something that should have been left to the private sector in the first place because you would think that where there's demand for additional beds that the, the private enterprise would fill that need rather than having the government come and apply uh, artificial restrictions on things. Now in places I know that the issue at the time was that there weren't enough beds in some of the rural areas. Well maybe that could be helped through some type of uh, Program, but again, it has to be done very cautiously, and maybe with some public-private uh, partnerships to solve those problems. Uh, with uh, respect to Medicaid expansion, uh, certainly that's. I mean, in principle, I'm just against uh, providing benefits to folks who are able-bodied and should be able to take care of themselves. And uh, however, I know that the insurance industry again is another industry that's been very. Uh, uh, impacted by government intervention and tinkering with it, and there are so many moving parts with it, you don't really know how it's going to affect the individual insurance rate payer and the people that are, are consumers of that. 
So again, I say you have to tread very cautiously when you get into those things. And I'm open to listening to arguments to improve the circumstances of the people of District 24 and uh, South Dakota at large. And uh, I look forward to those conversations and seeing how uh, getting into those things and taking some actions would affect our people. Mike Weisdrack, um, to you, some thoughts on the uh, nursing home uh, crisis situation and um, talking about Medicaid increase. Well, uh, I mentioned earlier that I just came from a fair board meeting, and uh, part of that was to look at the financials uh, for the next fiscal year and seeing how much of a loss that we're going to have at uh, our nursing home. And it's, uh, it's not because we don't have demand. It's because of old facilities, lack of workers, and if you don't have enough workers, you, don't, you can't bill enough. You can't fill up the place to have it profitable. So it's, it's really a challenge. Uh, and I know there's some talk, some consolidations and whatnot, but it's a, it's, it was kind of an unnerving thing to, to witness uh, this morning. However, I'm going to tell you about a success story. Uh, Will and I had the opportunity to tour the uh, hospital and nursing home facilities in Philip. If you want to be proud of a nursing home facility, uh, go visit Philip. It's uh, I'm a lot closer to the nursing home than the rest of you are, because I think I want to be in Philip. <laughs> it is a it's a new facility. It was a uh, uh, once again a somewhat of a public-private uh, venture with uh, lots of fundraising from folks in Philip to contribute to a very modern facility. They have, they're fully staffed. People want to work there because it, it's absolutely beautiful and uh, they're full. And, and it's, it, it, it is just something that uh, was so rewarding to see a, a week or so ago. And, uh, I, so I, I know it can be done if you want dedication. We see proof of it. As far as the Medicaid expansion goes, um, that is going to cost an undetermined amount of money for the state of South Dakota. It uh, most likely will be on the ballot in November, or it will be on the ballot. So we'll see how that, how that goes. It does uh, mean some you know, additional Revenues that will be uh, needed for from the state, or at least uh, dedicated from the state. Um, we'll, we'll listen to the voters and we'll, we'll act accordingly. Right. Mary Montgomery, your thoughts on the, the nursing home situation in South Dakota and um, increasing Medicaid support? Sure. I'll just touch on Medicaid since Jim had just on that. Um, I think we have to be very cautious with Medicaid. Uh, you look at other states and they're continually coming over budget, like, I want to say 10, 10 million dollars, so, you know, I don't want to throw out, you know, just, but you could bankrupt the state, like, we're not very, very cautious of that. I think, well, like I said, we, I guess we'll find out what the voters want, but, um, so I'm not in support of that. As far as uh, nursing homes, it's a real problem. And then there's, you know, we've looked at a lot of issues for that as far as not having housing, not having people. 
you know what? I always look at okay, what is restricting them, whether it be li licensing or different things like that. What can we do to help there to get more workers or younger workers in there? I could see that as an asset too. Um, you know, I, for me, I, it'd be going and talking to some of the more nursing home. Um, I know here in the hospital, the monopoly that we've got is, you know, their employees are the greatest asset at the hospital and the clinic here with the Vera. And they're driving to Sioux Falls to go work. Some of these moms are driving down there to work for three days and then coming back here. You know, why is that? Yeah, that's a hospital, but in effect, it's all nursing home clinic. It's all the same thing with the employees. Um, so I think it's a, it's a big issue. Um, and as far as taking care of our people, we got to take a good look at it. All right. Will Mortensen, you're going to get the last word. Uh, thoughts on uh, the nursing home crisis situation and uh, potential uh, increase of Medicaid support? You bet. So my. Um my grandmother is at Edgewood right now in the memory care unit, so I spend a fair amount of time there. And then uh, in the Shriners, we take fruit around to all of the nursing homes in town for Christmas. And so I get a look at these facilities, and, and they're, um, it helps to inform my perspective on these topics. Because what we're talking about in nursing homes is private pay or Medicaid. And you can only qualify for Medicaid when you've run out of virtually all of your assets. In this country and in this state, we don't let you just die on the street, and that is a good thing, of course, right? And so now what we're talking about are Medicaid reimbursement rates. That's really where the state comes into play. And so in the last couple years, we have been fortunate enough to allocate some of our ongoing general funds to making sure that we can get these nursing homes, but then some other Medicaid providers, up to 100% of reimbursement rates. So what does that mean? That means that these entities send data into the state and say, here's how much it costs us to provide these services. And for a lot of years, we gave them less than what they could prove to us that it cost them. And we're pretty proud of ourselves now because we're at 100% on virtually all of them, and a few of them a little bit more. But it's not like these nonprofits, like most of the nursing homes like Avera, uh, are, are making money on, on these Medicaid programs. But we do want to make it that they can keep providing these and stay open, particularly in rural areas where there's a lot higher percentage of folks who are not private pay but who are eligible for Medicaid, they've run out of other assets, and now we're making sure that they have a decent uh, and respectable life going forward. But folks, this is the type of thing where we're scratching and clawing to get to 100%. And they have staffing shortages, and so they're trying to increase wages without putting themselves on the hook for too much ongoing liability, but, but we're scratching and clawing. And this is why I couldn't support cutting the sales tax. Why well, I didn't view that as a, a very serious proposal. Because I think we need to keep these nursing homes open, and just because we get a whole bunch of money from the federal government in one year, it wasn't time to cut our revenues on in an ongoing fashion. Because then we really aren't going to be able to keep our nursing homes open. We're not going to be able to pay our teachers what they're worth. We're not going to be able to pay state employees a fair wage. It just isn't a proof, you know, it might look good on a scorecard or a soundbite, but it is not prudent fiscal management. And so those are the really tough decisions that we've got to make there is, we're dealing about with things that affect real people, whether it's their education or keeping these nursing homes alive. And it's a thing that we've got to continue to put energy toward because while Philip looks good, I've been to some other small towns that don't quite look that good. And um, their cost of doing business isn't going, going down either. 
And so we've got to continue to, to keep our state on firm fiscal footing so that uh, we can make sure to keep these places open and provide the services to people need. All right. Thank you to uh, all of the District 24 uh, House and Senate candidates that were able to come today. Certainly appreciate your time and insights. And uh, this video will be uh, made available on our website through Election Day. So uh, feel free to chat with folks, send them to that. So however you need to, to do that to help educate the voters. Thank you all for being here. Thanks, Thank Joey.